0: Okay, welcome everybody to episode 31 of the Academy of Management's origin series, where we, where we take you behind the curtain to understand the story behind the story that comes out in AMR papers. Um, today, uh, I've got with me Jeff Lovelace and Logan Steele, and they are going to be talking to us about their paper entitled Organizational Underdog Narratives, the Cultivation and Consequences of a Collective Underdog Identity. Um, but before we get into actually talking about the paper, Logan, Jeff, if we can just have each of you introduce yourselves briefly, just a little bit about um, uh, uh, who you are, where you're located, what your research identity is, and then we can dive into the the the, the meat of the actual paper. Logan, if we can start with you.
1: Sure. Uh, so my name is Logan Steele. I'm an Assistant Professor of Management at the University of South Florida. Uh, my general areas of research are in creativity, leadership, and ethics. And uh, since starting this paper, this paper has been the first part of my uh, exploration of how people understand their disadvantages. And after you identify as a person or an organization who's disadvantaged, what are the consequences of, uh, of that judgment? So that's where that's where my attention is right now.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Jeff? Uh,
2: my name is Jeff Lovelace. I'm an assistant professor of commerce here at the University of Virginia and I'm an International Research Fellow for the Oxford Center for Corporate Reputation. Uh, My research focuses broadly on leader sense-making in in organizations and uh, particular emphasis on social evaluations like celebrity and reputation, and how do those influence the decision-making, cognition, behaviors of leaders. I particularly do work in the upper echelon theory space uh, is where I think my focus has been leaders at the top of organizations for the past couple of years.
0: So just to clarify, Jeff, would you would you consider yourself more of a meso-macro kind of scholar? Yeah. And Logan, you more of a micro kind of scholar? Is is Have I got that right in terms of interpreting your identities?
1: Jeff?
2: Greg, <laughs> <laughs> I joke about this sometimes. I'm like, it depends on the audience that I'm talking to and how I can adapt to fit into that. But yeah, I think uh, I use a lot of micro theories at the macro level. So describing as a meso-scholar, Um, I think is appropriate for me.
1: Cool. What about you, Logan? Definitely micro. I don't understand most of what Jeff says.
0: So. uh, (laughs) Okay. Well, so we're talking about this paper, Organizational Underdog Narratives, the Cultivation and Consequences of a Collective Underdog Identity. Can you, one of you, give me sort of the the high-level, one-minute elevator pitch as to what is this paper about? What's its central message? What's it conveying?
1: Yeah, I I can start with that. So uh, the story, the story of the underdog, we know is like a fundamental human narrative. Uh, It's it's very old and it's very abundant. Uh, It's particularly abundant in the United States, but it's all over the world and in in many cultures. And so uh, what we notice is that over the past decade or so, there's been a lot of research on how businesses utilize it as a marketing tool and how politicians will utilize it. Uh, and you know, vying for for political office, um, but we don't really n- know what happens when you adopt that identity. What what happens to your internal stakeholders? Uh, so that was what this paper was really about.
0: So the idea being that at the organizational level, if I, if I, if I'm interpreting the title correctly, that that an organization can adopt this identity of being the underdog is have I interpreted that correctly and what would be sort of some of the, the the sort of notions or ramifications that would come from that
1: yeah exactly and so we we've found a bunch of examples we decided to hone in I think on like four or five different examples but you know one of our favorites uh, that we relied on a lot was uh, John Legere at uh, formerly at T-Mobile and He'd love to talk about T-Mobile as the underdog against the giants of, of um, AT&T and Verizon. And this was before their, their merger. Um, but uh, what, what's interesting is that AT&T made the same argument. Um, they also thought that they were the underdog. And so that, that was part of what really hooked us when we were working on this paper was seeing that uh, everybody is trying to compete for this narrative, uh, even when Apple or Google, you know, by, by no stretch are they an underdog. Uh, but they like to talk about their humble origin story and that they came from nothing. They were in a garage. And uh, so uh, the ubiquity of the story, but the lack of understanding of what the consequences are of of making that your story, um, I think was was really intriguing to us. And, so and the, other said, side of that,
2: Greg, the other side of that is the, the marketing literature is pretty specific about the benefits that come along with that, that people want to support the underdog Maybe not so much if it costs you something, but they're going to root for you, all things being being equal, and we'll try to support that underdog. And so externally, there's all these benefits. And even individually, there's some work on this that we've seen at the micro level on why, as an individual and underdog, it can influence your motivation. Um, but when you can choose or not to be part of that organization, why, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to wear that mantle of, it's going to be hard for us to win, we're going to defy the odds to come from behind, right? And if that's not certain, and I think that was what excited me about working with Logan on the paper.
0: So, so who's the target audience for this paper? I mean, which conversation essentially is a joint conversation or conversations is it joining? And what's the sort of extension or, or value that it's adding or a or, uh, 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 different sort of contribution that it's making to that conversation?
1: Yeah, so th- this was sort of reverse engineered, I think, which isn't a great thing to say about your paper, but uh, it was part of our conversation, uh, Greg, that the three of us had when we were, you wrote the editorial and phenomenon-based theorizing, uh, that sometimes it does require a little bit of, well, I found something interesting, now where does this fit with what we already know? And so uh, in thinking about this paper and who the target audiences might be, I, I think people are interested in how leaders use stories to create identities uh, and different types of identities. Um, one of the things we found when we uh, really honed in on that being our our um, our mediator in this model, the collective underdog identity, was that. There's not a lot on, there's a lot of research on the strength of people's organizational identification and the consequences of that, both for good and for ill, but not so much on, well, who are you identifying with? What are the contents of that identification? Uh, and that's true in the social psychology literature, too, that's really about strength and not so much about contents. And so that was something that I felt like we were participating in that conversation. Um, also, people who are interested in how organizations manage adversity. Uh, so we, only after writing this paper have I come across work in entrepreneurship and strategic management literature on resilient organizational resilience as a construct. Uh, um, so again, sort of post hoc, it's like, oh well, this is this our paper is part of this conversation, and we didn't even realize it until uh, after being well underway. Jeff, is there anything you'd add to that?
2: No, I think I just. Uh... thinking about the leaders, not necessarily a different audience, but those leaders, the the nuances of of how this plays out. We think about, let's just get this identity. If we can get people to really feel like they belong, then it's going to lead to good things. And I think something that was important to us throughout this process was there's shades of gray in this and the outcomes that can come from these collective identities. And, And that was something that we wanted to highlight, which I think is a message for leaders, but it's also a message for It's a message for employees. Uh, And and so what else do we have to be mindful of? We can get the group galvanized together. That doesn't always lead to where we might want it to. And so understanding those nuances for leaders and for members of the organization, I think were important factors throughout this, this
0: writing process. So the one thing I took away from reading it was that I think it can most likely be embraced and add value in multiple different directions. If you think about it from a sort of strategic leadership standpoint, there's definitely an aspect of the paper that can sort of speak to that literature and the pragmatics of being a strategic leader. There's the organizational identity elements and how you sort of uh, uh, take organizational identity in a slightly different direction and can contribute back to that literature. There's the um, as as you've alluded to, there's sort of this uh, parallel um, entrepreneurial kind of uh, underdog uh, 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 sort of notion that's been and and it can can feed back into that. And so whether by design or almost by ultimately how the paper landed up being, it's it's got this sort of multi pronged attack into different literatures. And and for that reason, I would encourage anyone who's interested in. Stories and identity and strategic leadership in um, sort of uh, entrepreneurial sense making to some extent and cognition to to really pay attention to this paper because I think there's there's interesting stuff for multiple audiences within it um, and 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 I guess that puts it into a sort of interesting space where it's not only speaking to this one audience and they're not the only ones who're gonna gonna cite it but then it lands up bridging multiple places, which you just hope that all of them are, all of those different groups are willing to engage with it and embrace it. So so as this sort of multifaceted paper, can you give us a sense of what is the backstory to this paper? How do the two of you, you both introduced yourself, I think, as assistant professors. So um, uh, mac, micro, more macro, mezzo. Um, So coming from, from sort of different traditions, different places, how did the two of you land up coming together and working on this sort of notion of, of underdog narratives?
1: Yeah, so there's uh, a couple of places that um, it started, and then they just happen to be around the same time. So the first was a data set that a friend of mine uh, was Talking with me about where you had applicants who were overclaiming their qualifications and their applications, Um, and we were talking about why why might people do this, why uh, what might motivate them to do it, and we thought about well, what if it's related to the adversity that they feel like they've overcome? So uh, if if you're a male going into a female-dominated industry and you feel like your chances are low of getting an interview, maybe you over uh, you overclaim what your qualifications are in order to. Uh, help you level the playing field Um, so that that's what uh, was the start of it um, was just that data set and then more broadly speaking like trying to make that more abstract like what does it mean uh, um, in in like the sense of like what constructs are involved Uh, and so I uh, there's a social psychologist here at USF uh, who studies underdogs Joe Vandalow um and so i happened to be presenting some of my research at the uh, in the io program the industrial organizational phd program here and somebody said you should you should talk to the social psychologist uh who's just uh, upstairs so after after that conversation uh and him reading some of his research uh i wrote a brief i think like a one page proposal here's the big idea i think like here's the leaders are going to tell a story it's gonna create an identity and the identity is gonna foster risk-taking of some kind and maybe specifically unethical kinds of risk-taking. But I have no idea how to write a theory paper. <laughs> uh, so then I emailed it to Jeff, who we had just met, I think a month or so before that at a conference. And I said, you have lots of experience with this and we both study similar stuff. Can you, like, what do you think of this idea?
0: So Logan, you, you had sort of based on, on, on actual Empirics and seeing some stuff sort of emerging from the data, seeing seeing some sort of elements of this phenomenon in practice in somewhat different setting, but as you worked with the idea and got the opportunity to present it and bounce off someone else, sort of evolved it more to this kind of leadership organizational uh, level. Um, but you hadn't had the experience writing a, a theory paper, and Jeff, you had, you had done it before, and you had learned from some of the best. And so um, y- y- you were um, uh, you were able to bring that to the table at, at that initial initial piece. What what sort of drew you into this idea initially, and and how were you thinking about it when you first got this one or two page proposal from Logan?
2: Sure, and you know I was aware of Logan. We come from a, a similar academic family tree, if you will, and and some connections in there. And so, while we didn't necessarily have the the personal connection, I think we were aware of each other. And so his reputation preceded him a little bit in terms of just knowing how hard he worked and and um, the type of work he was doing. So seeing those connections, uh, but the the way he presented that elevator pitch on the question of like, hey, we know people like underdogs, but why would you want to be part of an underdog? And I was like. Ah, It's interesting question. And we had a conversation about it and just flowed very easily. And so there seemed to be a good dynamic between us potentially working together on it. Um, And as I thought about, you know, the kind of the the general process that he laid out initially, I just saw a lot of overlap with things that I felt like I knew a lot about. I felt like I could contribute there. I think that's something important for me is if you're going to jump into a project well, you still need to learn new things. I want there to be a grounding and something I feel comfortable with that I can have a contribution there. And so felt like the idea was exciting. Everybody loves talking about underdogs. We're enamored with those stories. And so the phenomenon, the question caught my eye to start. And then it felt like as we went along and and had conversations that developed and it just felt like there was really something there to
0: explore. And what did that forging, that sort of, Academic bond, if you will, or or at least exploring the potential to do it. Um, what were what was some of the things that seemed to be helpful or or help each of you assess whether this would be worthwhile collaborating on and working together? You, have Logan, already alluded to the fact that you put at least some stuff down in writing and were able to email it off as an elevator pitch, and I think it's worth um, noting that for people who've got ideas that they're looking to find collaborators or to work with others on. But were there any other things in terms of the calls that you might've had or the, the way you communicated or how you might've tested or felt each other out in terms of who's going to work hard or are they are, are, are they committed to this? So, because I think a lot of people, what what we, we hear from potential authors is they've got ideas, like they don't necessarily have all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle for putting a conceptual paper together. They're looking for collaborators, but are a little uncertain of how to navigate that, or maybe on the other end of the equation are being approached by someone else that they haven't worked with before. And just thinking about how do you, how do you evaluate whether this is potentially going to be a relationship that's going to work There's Mm -hmm. obviously beneficial retrospective bias here. There's a great outcome to (laughs) the story, but if you look back on it, what would be some of the things that you think helped you forge that connection initially? That's a I great would say question.
2: The, I would say that having something concrete to look at w- was very helpful. You know, yeah. I was I was aware of Logan, and so the it didn't feel as much like a cold call. We had, you know um, chatted I think once or twice before I got the email about it, and and again knew of him kind of through the network. But having something concrete to look at. And and that'd be before we really even got talking about it, I was able to play a little catch up and be like, okay, I see where he's going, here's some ideas. And I think then coming to a few of our me- early on meetings, um, something that just told me it was gonna be a good working relationship, I didn't know if it was gonna obviously turn into an AMR paper was just the commitment to, to following through on whatever we had kind of agreed to. So the, sh- the sharing of notes, the sharing of, input back and forth before we came together it sounds simple but just seeing that that work and and preparation each time coming into those early meetings you kind of say okay yeah same level of commitment here um we'll see how the idea develops but at least you feel like you have a a partner in crime so to speak that's going to put the same level of effort into that into that paper
1: yeah i totally agree I, i i think uh i mean this was a successful collaboration, but I think I've had enough failures that I can kind of contrast what, uh, yeah, yeah, at at least in these early stages of my career. And I think one of the, uh, things that made our collaboration distinct in the beginning was that was delivering things on time. Uh, like you said, you were going to do X by next week and you did X, uh, and. Jeff's got a military
0: background. You can bank on that. (laughs) (laughs) That's true.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and you don't really realize how valuable it is until you don't have it. Um and it's it's remarkable how qu- quickly I think the the absence of uh that accountability erodes the quality of a collaboration. Um so I I think that was really important to me. And then also seeing that in our conversations, I felt like it was uh that Jeff was just as good as hearing what I was saying as he was building on it or like critiquing it. Um so it it really felt like a um a true collaboration because uh I felt like every idea that I may have offered, uh he took that and just made it better. Um so you know that that's exactly what I was hoping for in a collaboration and I feel like I got lucky that I found it.
2: And Greg, I might save up just one more thing for more junior scholars, because I think there's some senior scholars that can probably pick things up at different time intervals. When Logan and I both started working on this, we are very early in our assistant time. And, and so I think one of the things that, for me at least, helped was we were both willing to commit time on a regular basis. So I think at some points we were meeting weekly, at some points it was every other week. Um, but to keep yourself immersed in the literature for a theory paper which can be very amorphous sometimes as you're trying to figure it out it's it's not like you have the sync you know these two or three hypotheses and then the data is what the data is and you're designing a study you're not necessarily grounded that same way and the paper can evolve differently um meeting regularly so it was at top of mind and continually processing it never got pushed too far to the side i think was very important to us through through this paper and and for us establishing a a new collaboration with an author that I, you know, we hadn't worked with each other before this.
0: So figuring out some sort of cadence that keeps you both accountable, engaged, and sort of keeps the momentum going in in developing that, because I think you you make an important point that it's quite easy to set aside a, a conceptual paper, partly because you're, you're not too sure what the boundaries are, it could turn into anything. Um, and so, uh, making sure you, you didn't fall into that trap, I think is, is very useful. How and did you get all
2: of those things? There was regular communication too, right? You know, like, Hey, I found this article. It's got me thinking about these things. You should check it out too. So by the next time we met some Ashmore's work, right? On collective identity. I can remember Logan sharing some of that stuff early on when we kind of identified that was a space we could contribute to. Uh, And so you had the chance to ruminate on it
0: a little bit before we tried to get into a a conversation about it. So can you give us a sense of uh, Logan's got a one or two page proposal, you start going back and forth a little bit on it. What would be some of the key things that get you from that one or two page proposal to a full draft paper. What are some of the sort of key elements that you feel you needed to have in place? And in, and 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 if you've got any sense of it, in in what order did they come, um, or it, it just very very generally in terms of helping people understand, how do you go from that that first proposal to to getting a full draft in place?
1: So here's what I remember. I, so I know we had the first. Uh, I, this is a practice that I've since adopted, since writing this first uh, research proposal for Jeff, which was, uh, what's novel about it? Why is it important? What are the contributions it's gonna make? Uh, So I always write one to two pages on that before I start any project, because I feel like if I can't answer those questions for myself, uh, you know, I'm not gonna persuade reviewers. Um, So I think having that first, like those first couple pages written, even if we completely abandon them, but just having something to start from, uh, was was helpful. And I think the next step was uh, figuring out what are the literatures that we're gonna contribute to uh, where where's our home base in terms of one, two, maybe a third, but one or two theories? Uh, after that, I think it was given these constraints, what are the antecedents? what are the consequences? What, if any, are gonna be our moderators? And so it was really iterating on that conceptual model. and you know we talked about uh, I think it was, at least fifty versions of, because we kept a tr- uh, track in a PowerPoint file of the conceptual model that that um, uh, that we worked on over time. Uh, so uh, once we had a, a pretty good idea of what the conceptual model was, we wrote out the propositions formally and put a couple of bullets of explaining the logic, and then we shared that with three people each, I, I think. Uh, so we got feedback that way, and then you, Jeff, shared it with all of the folks in this. Sc- School of yeah. Commerce, right? We do a uh,
2: we do kind of a, an informal research chat series here within our faculty, kind of within-house where we present, it can be more developed, but a lot of times it can be early on sorts of ideas. And so I shared a abstract, the propositions and a picture of the model with my faculty kind of during a lunch session and just explained it kind of to those points that Logan had talked about. And we had iterated on all those things quite a bit after even getting some initial feedback um, from others on this idea and got some amazing feedback from them on some red flags, some literatures on, for example, the aspirations literature. I can remember my colleague David uh, Lehman put a, kind of pointed us towards that here. like, this feels like you might want to check this out. It ended up being a key part of the narratives that we talked about for the leaders. Um, we got some really important early feedback that I think put us on the right path um, before we got to even a you know full or draft manuscript that was even in place
0: so can you give us a sense of what you said you went to three people each to get some early feedback on on sort of this early bullet pointed uh, uh, so it sounds like you had something that sort of represented an intro plus um a at least a conceptual model plus some propositions plus a few bullet points that might have supported those. And you, you, you shared that with people. What did you ask of them? What, what kinds of questions did you ask of them? And, and were these more senior people? Just give us an understanding of who you asked for some sort of inputs at that stage of the process.
1: So the people I asked, one is uh, my best friend from grad school, Logan Watts, who who is also a, a leadership scholar. And I just thought that like, I don't remember if we asked them specific questions. I think it was more, is this interesting and does it make sense? Uh, Because I think that we were really concerned about, given that org identity stuff, collective identity stuff was outside of both of our wheelhouses. So uh, even the aspiration stuff, which is more strategic management, like I I was not familiar with that. So even though we tried to keep it within leadership uh, uh, and some ethics, we ended up getting pulled into literatures that we were both pretty unfamiliar with. So um, checking for coherence, I think, was a, like, just an important checkpoint for us. So Logan Watts was one person that I asked, uh, just because we always do friendly reviews for each other. I asked Paul Spector, uh, given his editorial experience, I figured he'd be able to spot red flags, things that didn't look right, and then uh, 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 Joe Vandalow, who does the underdog work. Those are the three people I reached out to, and him because of his content expertise. Cool.
2: And I remember us also asking Sam Hunter, who is my advisor. So I, I'm actually I have a psychologist by degree is what that's another connection Logan and I have. And, and I've gone more into a macro space from that. But, um, you know, and I think part of it was we wanted a mix of peers that we thought would be um, give us some very candid feedback and, and some more senior folks that definitely had had that editorial experience that could maybe spot some of the red flags, you know, things that they thought could be insurmountable hurdles that we needed to pay attention to Um, and again that that feedback early on I think was critical and you alluded to some of the folks I've worked with before you know Don Hambrick Tim Pollock, John Bundy people that have been very successful uh, on the theory front Uh, and you think of these folks as, as so accomplished one of the things I learned from them was how much feedback you need to get and getting input on your ideas and being willing to go back to the drawing board that you're not just going to pump this theory paper out and it'd be perfect and you send it in. It's going to be great. It's going to be
0: an iterative grind a little
2: bit, and you've got to be willing to get that input.
0: Yeah, I just want to double click on that because it's one of the things that as an editorial team, we made a sort of strategic call on that we're going to focus more on earlier stage ideas and giving feedback and helping develop those as opposed to um, full-blown papers in which, which, number one, take more work to provide feedback on. And number two, if you don't like what you see, it's harder to be very, very critical if someone's already got a full working paper and they think it's almost ready to go. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get feedback at that stage, but you should but as, a, as an author, I think it's incredibly valuable to do what you guys did, which was have something concrete laid out, but before it's too developed to go and get feedback on that idea that, that and, and allow it to evolve from that point. So just really wanted to double click on that, because that's one of the reasons we have these things called idea development workshops, because we think that's an important stage to get feedback. Where,
2: and, did the, where did the, where did the, later on, oh, we, go, go actually, we, later on, we actually did a couple of um sessions, like I did an AOM session, emerging scholar kind of uh, session and got another, even more feedback on the idea pretty early on. And so feedback was a theme. So, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure I got that in is some of these things like at AOM that they sponsor and, and you can get some ideas from really established folks um that will give you some really good input, some quick input high level, but stuff that can uh, really help your chances of success
0: improve as you move forward. Awesome. Now, you alluded a little bit earlier, so you alluded to the T-Mobile example and the fact that there are these sort of examples that are referenced a few times throughout the paper. At what stage did you go and sort of go and uh, find or derive or sort of Layer those examples into what you were doing because they seem to be pretty central, at least to making your points salient and concrete and sort of relatable to to a broader audience.
1: This was something that we did really early on, and I remember it being something that Jeff was emphasizing and something that Jeff brought to the table. He just had some of these in his uh, uh, in his back pocket, and and I didn't. Um, so the John Legere example. Uh, we also talk about New Balance and Uber. Um, those were there from the beginning. Um, <clears throat> but then when we, uh, over the course of revising the paper, I think this was before the initial submission, uh, we were, were trying to create variation in the types of underdog stories that are out there um, uh, or identify the variation that's out there. And so uh, that process of like what are the types of underdog stories how do we communicate what the types are Uh, that led us to search out more examples so we we had some ones from the very beginning uh, but netflix was the one that we added late um tesla was one that we added late uh just because those those ones fit better with the um some of the less well-represented underdog stories uh, that we um were looking for
0: so did you have a did you have a sense there, Logan, that um, that we we need a story that sort of has these 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 other dimensions? And you you went and actually searched on the on the internet or through the the news media to to uncover something that fit better with a, a particular set of dimensions that might be important to your theorizing.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we we it was sort of a problem of abundance. There were too many underdog stories, uh, and we were also making a deliberate choice to stay away from entrepreneurship, uh, because we didn't want the paper to become about just what entrepreneurs say. And, you know, uh, Gray, I know you have a paper in Journal of Business Venturing about the different types of no- narratives for, uh, like, resourceful narrative. And uh, there are identity narratives that are related to uh, um, uh, coming from a stigmatized group or a stigmatized location. In journal management studies, there is a Special issue just published about that, uh, so we are trying deliberately to make it about organizational behavior, um, and, uh, and and so it was helpful to have those constraints when looking for the uh, specific examples, given how many were out there. Jeff, were, were you going to add something?
2: I was just going to say, and then you start seeing them as you're writing this, right? Like as you're writing the paper and you're in it, you're like, oh, there's another one, right? So we had a, a running list of these examples. And the, the one that comes to mind that ended up being a prominent one in the paper, the Philadelphia Eagles were in their push to win the Super Bowl. Uh, kind of wow, we had started this paper, and then the guys start wearing the the underdog mask around on the field afterwards. And so, you know, you start seeing all these examples pop up while your mind is so deeply kind of involved in and in thinking about this process. Um, a couple of those examples were organizations I had been fortunate enough to to actually get to to visit at one point when I was a faculty member at at West Point. Uh, we did a leadership visit, a, a leadership club visit to. Uh, the Boston area. And so New Balance and the Patriots were two organizations that uh, welcomed us in and talked to us about kind of their viewpoint on things. And so New Balance in particular, I thought was an interesting one. I was glad to see it get in the paper because they have a certain set of values that they talk about externally in their marketing Um, but also in the way they talk about what they'll do and who they'll ask to be some of their athlete representatives, for example, stuff that they won't violate to try to get as big as Nike uh, or another organization like that. And so that was fun to see some of those personal experiences kind of translate into some of the examples we were able to leverage as well.
0: Cool. So were there... um... Were there any other sort of major things that you think, if you think, from going from uh, th- what you described, going out and getting some feedback on that version, and, and now and then, you know, having this this running list of examples and having to call some and bring some others in, what were some of the the, the other major things that sort of strike you as being important steps in the process to getting it to the point of that first submission? Is there anything else you can recall that was like either a turning point or something really important that you feel that you did beyond that first set of feedback that you got when you each sent it out to three people?
1: One thing I can remember, Jeff, is the your insistence that we have to have variation in, in our independent variable. Um, it can't just be a uh, homogenous leader underdog narrative. Um, and so we had from very early on, even though the like the components change slightly over time, we had those three components of there's a shared disadvantage, organizational aspirations and collective efficacy, like those have to be part of the leaders underdog story. Um, but the um, we ended up in the initial submission and it stayed in the paper that there are different ways that the leader can talk about the shared disadvantage or different ways that uh, the leader can talk about the aspirations uh, in terms of how those things are framed. Um, and that, that was really critical. Uh, I, I think it gave us a lot of nuance to be able to talk about how the narrative not only uh, has a different impact on the um, those changes in the narrative have an impact on the identity, but that uh it also ultimately translates in different um, a different impact on the outcome variables and risk-taking well-being um yeah so that was a that was a big one i don't know where the instinct came from but i feel like it was really important
2: and i just say again we sought more feedback we got friendly reviews once we had the drafted manuscript together and went to folks and and asked for some some feedback on the the full manuscript um and again hey tear it apart what's what makes sense what doesn't make sense we went back to some of the same folks um as w- during that process to say hey now we got a full manuscript we look at it again and, and you know being willing to move away from ideas that weren't working i think setting that precedent early on getting constructive feedback because like you said earlier right once you have the full manuscript it's harder to move it uh, but we set the precedent early on that it was really about getting the, the story right and understanding the, the question the right way and having the right components. And so there were things we just flat out cut out of the paper, whether it was you know outcome variables, whether it was moderators, they weren't working for the story. It didn't add contribution. It really didn't tell us anything new. It wasn't at the novel part of the story. And we abandoned those. Um, even though you spend a lot of time Writing them, and the sunk cost is not worth keeping it in the paper.
0: Yeah. So the willingness to engage, recognize that theorizing is much more of a social process than it is of an insular one, and getting feedback from people in one social network is just so important at each stage. And I think you've you've underscored that. So tell us a little bit about now, you submit it. You obviously get uh, get reviews back. And, and, and Logan, for you, this is your first time of going through the process of having to revise and resubmit a conceptual paper, which I think there are some distinctive differences to where you've got a set of empirics that you can lean back on and point to. Um, what were some key aspects of the, revise, uh, the, the revision process and what did you learn from that um, and how did it ultimately impact your paper? Well, I don't
1: know if it's good fortune or bad fortune, but we had a range of opinions about the paper. Uh, I know we gave a, a shout out to our AE, uh, Christina Gibson in, the, in, in our acknowledgements, but really we can't say enough like how grateful we are for her uh, because the, the divergence of opinions she had to manage were um, pretty drastic. So uh, reviewer one, uh, was lukewarm on the paper. Reviewer two hated it, uh, and reviewer three liked it, um, which was surprising. I, you know, rarely do you get somebody who says, "Yeah, I really like this paper. Here are some ways to make it better." Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, her her leadership was was so helpful. I think the main way the paper changed over time was, uh, I was looking back at our initial submission. Uh, we spent. Uh, about 24 pages talking about the antecedents to the collective underdog identity in the initial submission. Uh, the final draft, we only had 11. Um, so what the review team was really interested in w- was the consequences of the identity adoption. And, and so we there are whole sections of the model that weren't there uh, at the beginning. And so that, that was quite a transformation. And, and again, like took us out of what are we very familiar with? Uh, because we had to talk about the consequences of um, the organizational I- identity, collective underdog identity, over time. Uh, how does risk taking and well being, these two critical outcomes, we were focused on focused on. How do these affect organizational performance over time? And org performance is a uh, that's not a variable I'm very comfortable with. Um, let alone, it, you know, uh, the chronological effects of it. So, um, yeah, that was the biggest thing that I remember.
2: I just might add to that that I, I also look back at the original submission that we went with and I'm struck both by what was similar but what was different and when I looked at our contributions components of the narrative were something we talked about that understanding how the narrative varies was important that this adoption of the identity was a critical point in the model um, the connections with the outcomes. Now that part changed dramatically, but the idea that these lead to some kind of variance in outcomes uh, was was an important point. And then last, that this idea that collective identities, there's variance within them, and it has an influence on how the behaviors of people in your organization or the actions that the organization might take was another theme. So some of those themes translated through all the versions of the paper, And I think that that was something that Logan and I were able to hold on to, that what was important to us about this paper was surviving, even if things had to change. Emphasis points maybe needed to change, that the more novel or interesting part of the paper was later than what we had focused on early. Um, and, And that review process let that evolve, where we saw, okay, yes, for us, it took us a long time to get to this front part of the model, and we emphasized it so much. But we can more succinctly capture that for the audience we're speaking to. And then they really think this is where we can make a bigger contribution, but didn't lose. I don't, I never felt like we lost what mattered to us about the paper. Um, and this went through I think three full rounds of of R before then you have the conditional accept. And so four rounds altogether to get to the final final manuscript. Um, and one of the things that I think we learned. On our paper was the the outcome variables. I, I think early on, maybe to say it now in retrospect, we didn't have a justification for why we were looking at what we were looking at with the outcomes. Uh, when, what we had early on, risk taking and misconduct were always something we kind of talked about. We we batted around OCBs. We batted around engagement um, before we came to well being. And understanding why we looked at those outcome variables was something that the AE and the reviewers really helped us, you know, come to. Um, They suggested some of the things we looked at, uh, but also pushed us to say, why these? And we settled on what makes the underdog narrative unique. Every kind of narrative is probably going to have something about aspirations, right? Like that's going to be important. There's going to be something about efficacy in most, uh, you know, the, hey, we can do this. Um, but that shared disadvantage felt like the re- really unique component of the narrative for underdogs. And so that was how we um, kind of grounded why we're looking at these outcomes. Those were outcomes that are tied very strongly to the disadvantaged literature. And so why would we look at those? The linchpin of our paper, a linchpin of this you know underdog narrative being shared disadvantage. We chose these because it really highlights and we can connect it to things we know about. We talked about these things we don't know about. And it has a connection, bridges to an established literature, which I think was a helpful uh, tool for us in in understanding why we were looking at the things we did there. And I credit that, again, to the reviewers, to the AE, for helping us, uh, lead us to being able to find those and to justify
0: why we were looking at those outcomes. So for for my own purposes, but just also for anyone else who's going to play an editorial role at some point, can, can you point to anything that's sort of concrete and specific about what Christina did in this case that you found particularly valuable, and you would you, you would in a sense love to see more um, uh, uh, AEs doing something or, or or a few things that 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 just were 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 valuable to you as authors in navigating this process? Jeff, you want to start with this one.
2: Sure, I, you know, I, I think one of the things, uh, and Logan kind of started us down this path earlier, but we had divergent opinions on the paper and what we should do, and I think uh, you know, Christina did a wonderful job of saying like, okay, uh, you know, maybe on shouldn't say it quite this way, but on the surface, these are very different, but it relates to this question. So the question is, here's the issue. And while they have different kind of suggestions on where you might go or what the issue is, it ultimately relates to this question. So she was able to tie these differing opinions back to some key points that allowed, I think, Logan and I to organize our thought process. And then when we there's the paper you write and then there's the paper you write only for the reviewers to justify why you did the things that you did um, to understand how to come back to the reviewers and also say, we approached it this way because it related to this point. Here's why we decided to do what we do because we weren't going to satisfy all of them and doing exactly what they suggested, but could get at their intent. And, and I think Christina did a wonderful job of organizing those issues for us that allowed us to approach it in a logical way, but still gave us leeway to say, like, you know, not you don't have to do it this way. You have to decide what you're going to do. These are some ways you might go. Uh, but you have now a more coherent approach to what problem you need to solve, I think, is, is really what she did uh, in a, just an expert way through multiple rounds of that paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's super helpful. Logan, any, anything else that strikes you?
1: Uh, Jeff said it, a, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. So I'll leave it oh, there.
0: Perfect. So, um, so, so you end up with, obviously, with this paper, it's now uh, been in press for a while. Um, And you've you've allowed a a little bit of time to pass since having had it submitted and accepted. Um, what, uh, what, What impact do you hope that it will have? Where do you think are the next layer of opportunities? Logan, you alluded to earlier that it's sort of helped almost reframe some of your your own research identity. Um, But what what do you see as as or how do you think this paper can be a launchpad? Or what can it be a launchpad for next, either for yourself personally, or for other authors who want to pick it up and maybe do some empirical work with it or do other things with it? What do you see are the opportunities stemming from it? I think
1: in the near term, of course, I'd like to see it tested. Um, I mean, that's selfish, but that's uh, a project that Jeff and I and others have been working on is some of the um, some of the key propositions here and uh, not just testing them in a straightforward way, but hoping to elaborate and uh, refine the theory a bit um, more broadly, I think it's left me with more questions because, you know, a lot of what ended up in the uh, the what I think we call it the future research or uh, theoretical implications section of the paper was stuff that we left on the cutting room floor um, and uh, yeah, so I mean writing it ended up leaving me with more questions than uh, than I expected so you know we speculated for example, about how underdog narratives vary, but we have no idea I, I think that um, it would be terrific to have some sort of qualitative paper that actually pulls these together and you know setting up the right boundary conditions to um, uh, to do that is it's, it's an open question I, I have. I, I really want, uh, would love to know more about that. And I think um, I'm also curious how this connects with uh, the entrepreneurship literature and the research on stigma and using stigma as uh, like leveraging weaknesses for your advantage. I think you know, there are ways to make this more abstract and then through that abstraction, seeing connections to a lot of adjacent areas. Um, we ended up drawing a lot on social psychology and I would love to understand ways that we contribute back to that source literature. I think one of the ways is that uh, better understanding of the contents of organizational or collective identity rather than just the strength of identification. Um, But the more that I thought about this question uh, or that that issue specifically, I keep wondering how it's different from culture. Um, Like culture is about who we are um, and organizational identity is about who we are Um, I I don't know much about organizational culture and so I I don't want to step on any toes and offend anyone uh, but that's something that I'm I'm really interested in you know is this just a a, a, is defining the contents of organizational identity just a way of doing construct proliferation and that's something that culture has already done you know in spades for decades I'm not sure so uh, lots of cool directions to go it's it's the tough part is picking which one to focus on in the in the short
0: term awesome jeff what about you
2: i would reiterate the piece on entrepreneurs i know we said we kind of avoided that because we didn't want it to to just be about the entrepreneurial setting in in this paper but it had broader implications but i think that might be a rich setting for looking at how different folks craft their underdog narratives uh and and so that could be interesting but it also for me sets up something that i was fascinated by our paper is is how does that um identity construction vary over time and that was you know we have a bit on that in the paper uh and that was a push from the reviewers i think to to do that in our response we took some of their comments and ran with that and i think it's an interesting part of the paper how that balance of our narrative components kind of gets jeopardized and you have to rethink how you know, disadvantage aspirations and and collective efficacy might be thought about if you're successful or not successful over time, you know, how do organizations maybe still benefit from a previous underdog identity? When you put that into your history, can you be a top dog, but tie back to your roots, so to speak. And so that evolution of narratives over time is something that I would be interested in in seeing further explored. And I think uh, the one last thing I'll just say is, we started this by thinking about marketing and the marketing literature telling us the benefits of an underdog identity. This idea of multiple stakeholders and how they may respond to the to the promotion of an underdog identity in organizations. How are investors going to respond to that? Yeah, employees might like it. Are your investors going to like it? I don't know. Are they going to respond the same way? We talk a little bit about the media and how they may frame and respond to the leader's use of this narrative. How might they respond to the underdog narrative? Are they going to write more positive things about you because they, or are they going to write more negative things that you've acknowledged are at a disadvantage? So that that relationship between stakeholders and the use of these narratives, I think could be an interesting space to explore moving forward. We've kind of done them in these siloed areas and maybe them coming together would be a a fruitful avenue moving forward.
0: Yeah, awesome. Well, there's no doubt that the sort of, notion of organizational identity and in particular i think looking at the more at the contents of it and the substance of it as opposed to just the strength of it is a continuing and evolving area of research but then the 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 layer of narratives on top of that i think is and and the fact that organizations are entities that ultimately portray or construct and portray narratives in certain ways and they're they're more and more part of the 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 sort of sort of culture of stories or or embedded in the stories that form form the form culture around us, and so I think your 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 paper is well positioned to continue to be a a platform of which others can do work that builds on on those big ideas, and then the fact that leaders have some kind of agency over what is being portrayed, um, whether there be entrepreneurial leaders or more. Established, you know, CEOs or or, or C-suite executives, um, and and the fact that they they may be putting out certain narratives in service of something is very very interesting. So thank you, um, and thank you very much for the detail. Um, for the, the nuanced detail of how you went from uh, you know, Logan looking at a data set of resumes to uh, a, a paper on organizational underdog narratives. I think understanding each step of that story is valuable for everyone who takes the time to listen to this. So really, really appreciate you being so open and willing to share that journey with us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, you <laughs>